invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to be reading all 21 verses. This is the living and abiding Word of God. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation." For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Holy Scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that all 66 books of this Bible, which is ours, have been breathed out by your very mouth. They are inspired by God and they are profitable to us. 
And as we come to this story, Lord, we ask that, that you would work the timeless truths revealed in it in our hearts and that you would help us to see and to have more fully confirmed to our souls the nature of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We confess, Lord, our need of your Spirit now and ask that you would pour him out upon us in this very hour. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I'm sure that nearly all of us here have succumbed to shopping on Amazon. With your Prime account, you can have almost anything delivered to your home within two days at the click of a button. And if that's not enough, uh, Amazon has just released a new program called Prime Now in which they will deliver things to your home not in two days, but in two hours. And if you're willing to pay a little bit extra, uh, they can have it to your door within the hour. All of this is really telling. It's, it reveals that our culture despises waiting. We want what we want, and we want it now. The problem is that despite Amazon's best efforts, we can't escape waiting. Our days are full of waiting, waiting for the test results from the doctor, waiting in rush hour traffic, waiting for that much needed vacation, waiting for that love letter to arrive from that special someone. Waiting is a normal part of our daily experience. And in particular, the Christian life is characterized by waiting. God has promised glorious things for those who are in Christ. He has promised deliverance from every foe, the eradication of all sin and the complete destruction of the devil and his minions. He's, he's promised a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell with God and see him in all his glory forever. He has promised that Christ will come again to conclude history as we know it. But all of these things have yet to happen in the ultimate sense. We are waiting for the full realization of our salvation. And the question is, why? Why? Why didn't God, upon uniting us to Christ, immediately transport us to heavenly glory? Why not glorification now? That would have been nice. Why does he leave his people in a corrupt world with remaining corruption in their hearts? If we're honest, we have probably at one time or another questioned the, the wisdom of God in this. Why would God purpose the Christian life to be characterized by waiting for the fulfillment of unrealized promises? Did you 
realize that that's what you were signing up for when you bowed the knee to Christ? A life characterized by waiting, waiting for the fulfillment of unrealized promises? That's Christianity. And the question is, why? Why? And, and there's, there's many answers that could be given, but I, I think the most fundamental and ultimate answer is that God in the waiting is training us. He's teaching us about the nature of our salvation. He wants us to see that ours is a one-sided salvation. By that, I mean that he wants us to see that our redemption, our salvation is fully and completely a work of his grace alone. It's my hope to show you that tonight from Genesis chapter 15. It's a beautiful text, and I'd like to open it up tonight with the help of three heads. First, conflict, where we will see the promise being unrealized. Second, covenant, where we will see the the promise confirmed. And third, confidence, where we will see the promise embraced and believed. So first, conflict. Have you ever thought about the fact that every good story is full of conflict? Imagine a tale like the Lord of the Rings without conflict. What would it be without Frodo's struggle of soul as the ring pulled upon his own heartstrings seeking his destruction? What would it be without Gollum, orcs, black riders, dark powers seeking the the power of the ring? If Frodo's journey towards the fires of Mordor was filled with nothing but flowery fields and had absolutely no adversity whatsoever, it would not be a story worth reading. For it is, it is conflict that produces tension, and, and that tension produces emotions in the reader like suspense, desire, loyalty, and hope. In a very real sense, we could say that conflict makes a story, and it does so for the simple reason that we can identify with it. Our lives are not flowery fields most of the time. Life is not a bed of roses, but it is more like a battlefield full of conflict. And thus, we should not be surprised to find such tension, such conflict in the life of Abram. The conflict in our story was brought about by the vast difference between what God had promised and what Abram was experiencing. God had promised back in Genesis chapter 12 to make Abram into a great nation. And this this promise entailed a number of things as we see it unfold. It entailed descendants, a vast number of descendants, a large seed. It entailed a land, the land of Canaan in which this seed would be planted, in which this nation would be established. 
And it entailed the fact that God was going to take this people in this land and use them to bless the whole world. And so Abram had these great promises from God. And and these promises hearken back to the original gospel promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where where God had promised Adam and Eve that, uh, that there would be one coming, a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And now in Genesis 12, and then again, God comes in chapter 13 and affirms this promise. God God is specifying that that seed, the seed of the woman who would bring deliverance and blessing would come from the loins of Abram. The problem was that days, months, and even years had passed and these promises had not been realized. They had not materialized in any sense. Abram and and Sarai had not had a single biological child. And not only that, but this couple seemed beyond hope of ever having children. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 verse 19 that Abram's aging body was as good as dead and that Sarai's womb was characterized by barrenness. From an earthly perspective, a child being born to Abram and Sarai was an utter impossibility. Not only that, but the the land which God had promised seemed to be out of Abram's reach full of great and powerful nations, how would Abram ever possess Canaan? Rather than gaining possession of the land, Abram found himself dwelling in Canaan as a stranger in tents. And that's where we find him in chapter 15. And thus, when when God comes to him in a vision in verse 1, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Abram couldn't help but question. The chasm, the, the gap between his present experience and what God had promised was great and it seemed insurmountable. Imagine a deep gorge or, or a canyon separating you from where you are and where you need to go. You stand on one side and, and you look down at this large gulf with rushing waters below and, and you realize that left to your limited human resources, there is absolutely no way you will get across that gaping divide. Abram's situation was characterized by such a chasm. God had indeed protected him on numerous occasions and proven himself to be Abram's shield, but the idea of a great reward a great reward, which was an obvious reference back to the promise of a great seed and land, was far from realistic. He thus questions in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
He then calls God to consider his present circumstances in verse 3. Behold, you have given me no offspring, not a single one, God. And a member of my household will be my heir. We see again God coming to Abram in in verse 7, reaffirming his promise of the land, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God reveals himself as the giver of the land. To which Abram responds in in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram is struggling to trust God's promises. What he sees with his eyes is directly contrary to the divine promises ringing in his ears. The book of Genesis was penned during the wilderness wanderings of Israel, and and they would have resonated with Abraham here because they too found themselves in this chasm between God's promise and their reality. They were children of Abram. But the land of Canaan seemed out of reach, and the idea that they would become a channel through which all the world would be a blessing seemed a fairy tale. They found themselves asking the same questions as Abram. Often they were characterized by grumbling and unbelief because of this chasm. Was God really who he said he was, and would he really do what he said he would do. In God's wisdom, this chasm is not only a reality for Abram and Israel, but, but for us as well. The people of God throughout all ages experience this gaping divide between what they see and what God has said. I'm sure you know what that's like reading God's exceeding great and precious promises in his word and thinking this seems so utterly contrary to my experience. Do you know what that's like? The writer of Hebrews tells us that just as Israel obtained the promised land through the wilderness, so too Christians find themselves journeying through the wilderness of this world towards their promised rest. The salvation which God has promised us has not yet been fully realized. God's pattern for us, His people, is not immediate glory, but suffering unto glory. And He takes His people through this wilderness school to teach them something, to teach them what He was teaching Abram. Namely, that the promise of the gospel is a one-sided promise that is fulfilled wholly and completely by Him alone. God delayed the fulfillment of His promise to Abram, waiting until he was as good as dead and Sarai was past the age of bearing children. Why? Why would He do this? To make it clear 
to Abram that the promise of a seed would be brought about by his, by God's power alone. He caused Abram to live in tents as a stranger in Canaan, surrounded by nations greater than himself. Why? To teach Abram that he would not gain possession of the land of Canaan by his own wisdom and military might, but by the wisdom and might of God alone. This was God's lesson to Abram in the chasm. And what is the reason for, for God leaving us, friends, in this fallen world? with temptations abounding, enemies on every side, and indwelling sin in our members. Why does he allow his children to struggle with and, and often lack assurance of their salvation? Why is the Christian life full of so much suffering, persecution, difficulty, and frustration? Why not glorification now? Why does he leave the church in a place of apparent weakness in this present age? The answer is the same. It's the same. To make it plain to us and to the world that our salvation is a one-sided work of God in his grace. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God, in His grace, bears with the faith struggle of His people. He rightly could have responded to Abram's questions with displeasure, but he rather graciously condescends to strengthen Abram's weak faith by way of covenant. So we saw the conflict. Now here we see God's gracious covenant. He gives Abram confirmation of his promise that he will indeed become a great nation. In verse 4, upon the heels of Abram's statement that Eliezer of Damascus would become his heir, God says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. A biological son coming from the loins of elderly Abram and his barren Sarah. This is astounding. Then God brings Abram outside and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. Children, have, have you ever tried to number the stars? This was obviously impossible for Abram to do the stars were, were far too numerous to count, but, but this was precisely God's point. For just as the stars were, so too Abram's offspring would be a countless multitude. 
God freshly confirms his promise to Abram with both a word and a sign. He speaks to Abram and then he gives him Abram a sign. Look at the stars. This impossibility would become a reality through the one-sided, powerful working of God. He again confirms his promise to Abram, following Abram's question concerning the land in verse 8. Look at there with me. How could Abram know that he would possess Canaan? That was his question. And God responds, not with an answer, but with a command. He says in verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram bringing these animals in obedience to God. In verse 10, it says that he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. Now, to our 21st century American ears, this, this seems like a very strange ritual, but this, this was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. When, when a covenant was being cut or established, it, it was common for both parties to slaughter animals. These, these animals would be cut in half and they'd be laid side by side and these carcasses would form a pathway of sorts through which both parties would walk. And in walking through these torn carcasses, they would be submitting symbolically to the curses of the covenants should they be found to transgress it. In essence, they, as they walked through these dead animals, were saying, let me become like these butchered beasts if I fail to keep the terms of this covenant. Now what's astounding when we look at Genesis chapter 15, is that while Abram prepares for this covenant ceremony, he does not walk between the pieces. Rather, we're told in verse 12 that a deep sleep fell on him. While in a normal covenant ceremony, both parties would walk between these beasts, Abram is altogether passive here. God alone walks between the severed carcasses and he does so in verse 17 in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. In this way, God is saying to Abram, let me be dismembered like these carcasses if I fail to keep the promises of my covenant. That's amazing. Amen? <laughs> amazing. But what even is more amazing than that is that God really did suffer. He really did suffer the covenant curses to ensure that these promises to Abram came to full fruition. God himself did. For these promises, according to Paul in Galatians 3.8, were nothing other than the gospel. 
It was through the seed of promise that God would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But this salvation would come about through God himself undergoing the curses of the covenants. Just as these beasts were torn asunder, so too Christ would be torn and bloodied and beaten on the cross, undergoing all of the curses that his sinful people deserved. God alone walked between these severed carcasses to indicate that the salvation he would bring about was a one-sided salvation. For Christ underwent the judgment which you and I deserve, and he underwent it alone. Alone. You and I played no part in the salvation which he accomplished on the cross. He bore the wrath that your sin deserved and my sin deserved, and he satisfied God's justice in a way that you and I never could. And just as these covenant promises were confirmed through this covenant ceremony with Abram, so too God graciously condescends to us to confirm the promises of his covenant in the gospel. God meets his people in the chasm of this present world and with word and sign by the preaching and the sacraments, he confirms and strengthens their weak faith. By these means, he assures us, friends, of the one-sided nature of the salvation that is ours in Jesus. And so the question is, what, what is the proper response to such covenant confirmation? And we see that the proper response is Godward confidence, confidence in God. This, this is what we see in Abram. Look at, look at verse 6. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's faith evidences that he had come to terms with the one-sided character of the salvation which God would work on his behalf. He had learned from the chasm and from the covenant that this great nation which he would become would be 100% the working of God. And this becomes clear when we understand what the nature of faith is. What is is faith? One of my favorite definitions of of faith was was penned by by John Murray. Uh, He he describes faith. He, He actually coins a whole new term. You won't find it in your dictionary. But he describes faith as extrospective. Extrospective. Not introspective. It doesn't look to itself. It doesn't turn inward. But but faith is extrospective. It looks away from itself to its object. By exercising faith in God, Abram was demonstrating that his confidence 
lied in the one who alone could bring about the fulfillments of what he had promised. Paul says concerning Abram in Romans 4 verse 21 that he was fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And God wills for us. He wills for us to continue to struggle in this world with the flesh and the devil so that we too might be increasingly stripped of our confidence in ourselves and learn that our salvation is brought about by Him alone. He leaves us in this chasm toward that end, and and then he comes to us in the midst of this chasm and confirms the one-sided nature of our salvation through Christ's curse-bearing in the gospel. And the only rightful reaction, the only sensible response to this chasm and covenant confirmation is, is faith. If this gracious covenant is established and confirmed and fulfilled by Him alone, then the only response that makes any sense whatsoever is confident trust in God. Our journey through the wilderness of this world is intended to be a school of faith in which God tests, stretches, and grows our trust in Christ. He is desirous that we would be increasingly stripped of our native pride and rest solely and completely in Christ alone. We see that Abram had much to learn yet in this school of faith. If you turn to the next chapter, you'll find him trusting in the arm of the flesh to bring to pass what only God could. Questioning God's sufficiency and carrying out the promise, Abram took matters into his own hands, marrying Sarai's maidservant, Hagar, in order to propagate a seed. In Galatians 4, Paul draws a parallel between Hagar and seeking salvation through the law by means of our own works. When we depend upon our own righteousness and strength in our salvation, we, like Abram with Hagar, are trusting in the arm of the flesh to bring about what God alone can do. But by exercising confident trust in Christ and His gospel, we are aligning our souls to the truth, that glorious truth that He alone is able to save us. So in conclusion, let me ask you, are you trusting in Christ Have you learned with Abram of the one-sided nature of this salvation in Jesus? Have you been stripped of the filthy rags of your own self-righteousness? And and have you seen and, and embraced the righteous Christ in the gospel? Is your life characterized by an extrospective, outward-looking to God? 
Christ meets us in the chasm between our experience and his promise, in the struggle with sin, in the sufferings of this earthly life, in our fears and questions, in the waiting for the fulfillment of unrealized promises. And he calls us by the gospel to entrust our souls to him who alone can save us and save us to the uttermost. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we thank you for this so great salvation that is ours in Jesus. We are reminded from your word that we were utterly powerless because of our sin, because of the curse that rested upon us to procure a right standing before you. And we thank you, Lord, that you willingly and lovingly sent your Son to this earth to, as it were, walk between these torn carcasses in our place and to suffer the curses of this covenant for us that we might experience the blessings that you promised to Abram and that we might become his children by faith. Thank you for these realities. Thank you for this redemption. We pray, oh God, that as we would walk through the, uh, the wilderness of this world, that you would strengthen our faith to lay hold of you in your word, in your promises, in the gospel, and to not let you go. Use this wilderness school, Lord, to grow and stretch and strengthen the faith of your people that we might honor and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we conclude with our closing song tonight. I know whom I have believed in.
blessing from our Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.